Philippians 1. Philippians 1. We're going to try and cover two lessons tonight. Um, uh, just real quick, let's do some review. Of course, our, our verse that we recite every class period, uh, Psalm 119.18, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. It's important to remember, it's not a question of whether or not the wondrous things are there. Are our eyes open to see them? They're always there. And so the psalmist prays, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. We uh, talked about the genres of the Bible. A genre is a style that characterizes a group of compositions. And uh, there are six major biblical literary genres we covered last time. Exposition, narrative or biography, parables, poetry, wisdom literature, and prophecy, or what we would call apocalyptic apocalyptic literature. Okay, good. Um, the five keys to interpretation, content, context, comparison, culture, and consultation. Okay, um, and, and we're now wrapping up our discussion of interpretation. Lord willing, we'll finish it tonight. We'll do a little bit of review next week, and then we will get right into application. And I am, I am really looking forward to that um, because now what we've done is we've set the stage for the so what. And uh, we covered a lesson today. I, I don't know how the teams felt about it. I know that, that I, was, I went into that class period believing this was the most important lesson we've covered yet and that God was going to speak to us. And I believe he did. I believe he did. And I trust that he'll duplicate that for us when we get to that and here, I wish there was some way I could get to it tonight, but I can't. But we're talking about application and, and, and you know, how these things affect us and how the Word of God touches us and what it, what it teaches us. Um, so tonight, we begin Lesson 35, Coming to Terms. You say, here we are at terms again. Yes, well, you can't get away from it. One of the most important aspects of Bible study is that we define our terms. Um, it is so easy to assume that terms mean the same to one person that they mean to another. If you sit down with your average Mormon, you will find your terminology is very, very similar. A Mormon will talk about being born again. A Mormon will tell you that Jesus is the Son of God. A Mormon will tell you, talk to you about heaven. They'll talk to you about baptism. But if you know anything about Mormonism, you know that all of those terms are much different than the biblical understanding. Very different. Um, we were talking about, you know, in, in class today, being of Christ versus being in Christ. There's a whole lot of people that are of Christ, but they're not in Christ. And they use all kinds of terminology that sounds right. But uh, we want to be careful to make sure that we have the right terms. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump right in. Father, would you help us tonight as we look to your word? May I rightly divide it. May I be a help to your people, Lord. May I not just bring the academic information that they need, but, Lord, I ask that you would touch it in a way that only you can bring it alive to us, Lord. And may it be life-changing what we study tonight. And may Jesus be made much in it. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Okay. Now, what is a term? A term is a key word or a phrase that an author uses to make his point. A key word or phrase that an author uses to make his point. 
Now, we're going to talk, last week we talked, or last time we talked about things that you can consult. And I want to talk about two resources in particular, two secondary resources that are especially helpful with terms. The first is a concordance. Um, now, for many of us, this is going to be a duh kind of section because, you know, you've had a strong concordance on your library shelf for 100 years. But I've learned not to assume that everybody knows about these things or knows how to use them. And so I want to make sure that everybody does. I'm going to make two recommendations to you for your Bible study. I'm going to recommend a King James translation of the Scriptures. And I'm going to recommend a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. Now, can somebody love the Lord and study out of something other than King James? They can. Uh, it's my personal belief that you would not be getting all you could unless you use a King James, but I'm not against people that use other versions. I don't go to war over that, but I'm a King James guy, and so I, I recommend the King James. Um, but as far as a concordance, there's a lot of exhaustive concordances that are out there, Cruden's and Young's and things like that. I've always found that Strong serves every need that I have in this, in this regard. Now, you can get this in a in a computer program like eSword or something like that. Um, and you can get all this, and it's, it's quick to use it on computer. But I also know there's a lot of people that don't have computers that don't care to use computers. And I'm, I'm one of those people, I like books, you know. So you may not can afford a laptop and have the wherewithal to get eSword uploaded to it, but I can get you a Strong's Concordance for next to nothing. And you can have that on your shelf and get to it anytime you want to. Um, so let's talk about how to use a concordance. First of all, you can use it, and there, there it is, the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance is what I recommend. You can use it, first of all, for word studies, for word studies. And I have here on your sheet um, an example of the word joy. And if you were to go to a Strong's Concordance and you look up the word joy, you would see something very similar to what's here in blue. Um, you would see that if I look up joy and I follow down all the places that the word joy is used. By the way, this doesn't mean rejoice or rejoicing or, or variants of joy. I'm just talking about the word joy. Okay. If you look up the word joy and you follow it all the way down to Philippians, you find that it's, that word joy is used in Philippians six times. The theme of Philippians is joy. And you'll see the word joy and rejoicing and things like that all through the book of Philippians. But we're looking at the six times that the word joy is used in the book of Philippians. And you'll see that for, for you all, making requests with joy, Philippians 1.4. Your furtherance and joy of faith, Philippians 1.25. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be, Philippians 2.2. And service of your faith, I joy, Philippians 2.17. For the same cause also do ye joy, Philippians 2.18. Beloved and longed for my joy, Philippians 4.1. Now what you'll find is you'll find that to the right of those references is a four-digit number. Okay? And, and, and Mr. Strong went through a great deal of trouble to do this for us many years ago, and I'm thankful that he did. He categorized the Hebrew and Greek words, and he assigned them numbers. So if you were to look, you'd see this first joy is 5479 in the Greek side. You've got a Hebrew side and a Greek side. This would be 5479. So would the one in Philippians 125. So would the one in Philippians 2.2. But then you get to Philippians 2.17, you say 5468. It's a different entry. 
under that, 5468, 5479. So what do I do with those letters, or letter, those numbers rather? What do I do with that? Well, okay, 5479. So I'm going to go to the back of my Strong's Concordance to the Greek side of it, and I'm going to look up 5479. You know what I'm going to see? I'm going to see Kara. When we went through this in class, one of our students, many of you know Kara, I said, Kara, do you know what your name means? She goes, no, not really. I said, I can show you what your name means. It means joy. And it's spelled the same way yours is, C-A-R-A, only in the Greek. It's the Greek lettering. Okay, Kara. And it says from the Greek 5463. So what's that? That's a root word. That's a root word. So it says it comes from this word. It means cheerfulness, that is calm delight, gladness, joy, joyfulness, joyous. And you see that it occurs in the King James 59 times. All right, then I want to see what this 5468 is. 5468, Cairo. All right, Cairo, Kara. Can we come to a conclusion that maybe these words are related? They are. They're different forms of the same root word. Cairo, which means to be full of cheer. Calmly happy or well off, impersonal, especially as a salutation on meeting or parting. Be well, farewell, be glad, Godspeed, greeting. And this occurs 74 times. Then we want to look at that root, 5463. Cairo, which is the root of both of those words. And it means the same thing as 5468. And it occurs 74 times as well. And is often translated rejoice. So what have I have done? On a very basic level, I've just done a word study. I've learned every way the word joy is used in the book of Philippians. Just a small little word study. And you can do all of that and more with a Strong's Concordance. Now, let's say you're not as interested in the Greek or the Hebrew of something, but you want to do what we're going to call an obscure word study. I'm not that interested in I'm not that interested in, uh, in what it means in the Greek or Hebrew, but I want to find out something about this specific word. Do you have 1 Kings 11.7 on your sheet? Yes? Okay. Then did Solomon build an high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. Let's say that we're reading through this, and maybe we've heard about Molech somewhere, and we want to say, okay, why was Molech such an abomination? What was so bad about old Molech other than that he was a false god? You know what you do? You go to your concordance, and you look up everywhere Molech is mentioned. And you read all of those passages about Molech. And by the time you've read all of those passages about Molech, you've got a pretty good idea of what the worship of Molech involved. You would see that your Strongs would tell you that he was an Ammonite god. And you see it five times in the book of Leviticus, once in 1 Kings 11, once in 2 Kings 23, once in Jeremiah 32. You'd see that the variations of Molech... I've been, I've been using the wrong sheet this whole time. Only difference is mine's bigger print. You'd see that he's also known as Malcolm. Now, not if you're somebody you know somebody named Malcolm, that doesn't mean their name means they're an Ammonite god. It just that's how you pronounce it. 
Moloch, and Milcom. All these are the same, the same false god. And when you read through all of these passages, your conclusion about Molech and sadly Solomon's involvement. Now that's, that's what we want to hit on here. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live other than Jesus, built an altar to Molech. Now, any kind of false idol worship would be bad, but why is this particularly heinous? Because when you read about Molech throughout the Bible, I'm not even talking about archaeological and historical records. I'm talking about just the Bible. You know what you find out? You find out that Molech was the chief god of the Ammonites and that its chief form of worship was to burn your children in fire and sacrifice to him. What have I done? I've just done a study of an obscure name of Molech, and I know a whole lot more about how bad Solomon got just with a concordance. So, the first, the first resource that I would recommend to you would be a concordance. The second resource I would recommend to you would be a Bible dictionary. A Bible dictionary. And in this particular case, and there's a lot of good ones out there, but I think it's hard to beat the Vines, a complete expository dictionary of Old and New Testament words. The title is nearly as long as the book. Those of us who are professional scholars... Okay, those of them who are professional scholars, I'm not one. We just call it Vines. Hey, you got a copy of Vines I can borrow? I don't say the whole name. It's kind of like The Origin of Species, you know, Darwin's book. It's actually really long, the title is. You just say Origin of Species, or you can say that bunch of garbage. You can call it that too. But anyway, um, but let's, let's use Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. But ye shall receive power... After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And you get hung up on that word earth. What does Jesus mean? Does Jesus mean that there needs to be a gospel outpost on every square mile of this planet? The answer is no. That's not what he means. When you take out your Vines Expository Dictionary, and I have here a picture of, if you looked up the word earth, you would see that it offers you two basic definitions. You have one word earth that comes from gay, which means earth as arable land. Another way you could put that would be the inhabited parts of earth the inhabited parts of earth. And then the second, orkomene, which um, <laughs> got myself mixed up here, sorry, denotes the inhabited earth but is elsewhere translated world. Um, interesting. I think I confused my notes here. Give me just a second to get my head right. Oh, okay. Letter C, the inhabited earth. You see that under number one, letter C, the inhabited earth? Let me tell you what just happened. What just happened is I use the notes out of the book, and then I get into this, and I realize, wait a minute, this doesn't match up with what this dude said. But it does. He just didn't mention it was letter C, and that threw me off for a second. Letter C, the inhabited earth. All right, orkumene also means the inhabited earth. All right, so both of them mean the inhabited earth. All right. 
Um, there are other uses of the word that are translated earth that have the idea of the, the land mass or the planet or things like that. The point is this, whether it's gay or whether it's oikomene, um, either one is talking about the people, not the ground. That's the point. I'm sorry for the clutter that I went through to get to that point. All right. Um, it's the idea that Jesus is not saying, you know, is not saying uh, um, to make sure you have a gospel outpost in the middle of Antarctica where nobody is. No, he's saying reach all the people you can. Reach all the people you can. Um, from our use of vines, we've determined that Luke, when Luke reports Jesus' use of the earth, he means we are to evangelize the inhabited portion of the planet rather than have a gospel outpost on a remote, uninhabited tract of land. Now, something that's interesting, Luke seems to use the word earth more than about anybody else. Luke was kind of hung up on the earth in Acts and in the Gospel of Luke. But anyway. All right, so now I'm glad we've gotten through that because I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about some tools that you can use. But now let's go to the next one, and this is where we're going to spend our time. Now we want to look at figuring out the figurative, lesson 36. Figuring out the figurative. Have you ever heard the term colloquialism or idiom? English is full of them. Every language has them, but English is especially full of them. Can you imagine trying to learn English as a second language? And, you know, let's say you're a student trying to learn English as a second, a second language, and your teacher walks in, and you hear them talking with somebody else, and they say, I'll tell you, that guy's tougher than a pine knot. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? She's as mad as a hornet. Hmm? How about this one? Don't let the cat out of the bag. Wait, what's the cat doing in the bag? How about, how about he spilled the beans? Oh, that's terrible. Beans are good. Oh, no, it doesn't have anything to do with beans. What's it mean then? She has a green thumb. Well, that's probably not good. You think that you've got something figured out or you've got the game one or whatever. We got it in the bag. What? What's the bag and what do we have in it? I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. I heard a new one today I'd never heard before. And that's, that's interesting because I thought I've heard them all. You better make sure there's no bats in the cave. I've never heard that in my life. And so when it was said to me, I had no idea what they were talking about. Anybody know? How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? I, I didn't. But the whole day I've been doing this. But anyway, I had no idea what that meant. I finally asked my wife and she goes, I don't know, maybe this? And I'm like, well, I bet that is what it is. And now it makes sense. But anyway. Well, scriptures are full of these kind of things too. Um, <laughs> would you agree with me the Song of Solomon is not meant to be taken literally? I mean, as far as what he says about this, this girl. I mean, the way he describes her, you know. We've shown you the picture of what this woman would look like if everything he says is literal. <laughs> Something, I'll tell you. All right. How about when Jacob prophesies over his sons in Genesis 49? He uses a lot of idioms and a lot of colloquialisms that are not meant to be taken literally. They're meant to describe where these boys are headed and where their descendants would head. How about this? When Jesus calls the Pharisees whited walls, are they literally walls of tombs? No. 
Are they literally half-clean platters? Nope. Are they literally vipers? Close, but no. No. And then the book of Revelation's got a lot of it. A lot of your prophecy and apocalyptic literature has a lot of this. So the real trick is to figure out what is meant to be taken figuratively and what is meant to be taken literally. As Bible believers, we say that we are literalists. We believe in taking the Bible literally. But there are some portions of Scripture that are not meant to be taken literally. And we got to figure out how to, how to divide those two. Because if we don't rightly divide this, we can get into a mess. We can get into a mess. And so we're asking the question, how do we know if something in Scripture is meant to be taken literally or figuratively? All right, number one, use the literal sense unless there is some good reason not to. That's a basic rule of Bible interpretation. Go literal unless there's something compelling to tell you not to. For instance, Revelation 9. I've touched on this before. You have these demonic, locust-like creatures that come up out of the pit. They have faces like, uh, like men. They have manes like women. They have scorpion tails. When they come, it sounds like chariots rumbling. And a lot of well-meaning preachers said this was John's best way that he knew to describe helicopters. Except nowhere in the passage does it give us any indication or any reason to do anything but take this literally. It never says like or as. It says this is what they look like. This is what they were. And so there's no reason to say that, that John is speaking figuratively unless the passage says to say it, you know, it says like or as or something like that. And there's none of that there. So we take it literally, literally. How about this one? Number two, use the figurative sense when the passage tells you to do so. Now, how would a passage tell me to do so? Go to Genesis 37, please. Genesis 37. How does a passage tell us to do so? Well, in this particular case, Genesis 37, and uh, we'll start in... Um, verse 5. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose, and also stood upright, and behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said unto him, Shall thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. How do we know that Joseph did not literally become a sheave and that his brothers did not literally become sheaves? How do we know that? Because what does verse 5 tell us? It was a dream. So there's nothing literal to be taken there as far as sheaves and bowing. You know, when he talks about the sun and the moon and the stars in his next dream, none of that, all of that is within the context of, of a dream. And so if you were dealing with something in the context of a dream or a hallucination or thing, that's the passage telling you to be figurative and not literal. Number three, use the figurative sense if a literal meaning is impossible 
or absurd. Revelation 1.16, let's take a look at that. Revelation 1.16. Speaking of Jesus... Verse 13, for context, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. By the way, as a flame of fire, were his eyes literally on fire? No, they were as a flame of fire. That's a simile, and so it's not meant to be taken literally. His feet, like undefined brass. Was Jesus' feet literal brass? Nope. Like unto brass. Um, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice was as the sound of many waters. When Jesus spoke, did he speak waterese? No. As. It's not meant to be taken literally. Okay. Now verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Do we take that to mean that when John laid his eyes on Jesus and Jesus began to speak, that a literal sword came out of his mouth? No, that would be absurd. It's speaking to the power of the word of God. Now, it's not as close, closely connected as Hebrews 4.12 as you would think because it's a different type of sword. It actually speaks of his victory. It speaks of his kingship. But... Uh, but anyway, it's, it's meant to paint a picture, but it's not meant to be taken literally. Okay, So use the literal sense unless there's some good reason not to. Use the figurative sense when the passage tells you to do so. Use the figurative sense if a literal meaning is impossible or absurd. Now go to John chapter 6 with me, will you? John chapter 6. I miss my other Bible. I could turn to pages without even looking. And now I'm struggling to get from page to page, breaking in a Bible. It's a, I know you're thinking, oh, poor you. Yeah, I know, but. All right, John chapter 6, verse 53. Here's the next one. Use the figurative sense if meaning, if, if a literal meaning would involve something immoral. Would you agree with me that cannibalism is immoral? Man, I hope so. I sure hope so. Well, what does Jesus say in John six fifty three? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Why do we know that this is not meant to be taken literally? Because what Jesus is suggesting would be immoral. Would Jesus ever suggest anybody do anything immoral? Nope. Now, you say, well, duh, who can't see this? An entire group of professing Christians can't see this. 
The Roman Catholic Church practices what's called, practices what's called transubstantiation. It's their belief that every time they take the Mass, that the wafer becomes the literal body of Jesus Christ in their body, and that the, the wine becomes the literal blood of Jesus Christ in their body. That's what they believe. But that's not at all what Jesus was saying. Jesus was speaking figuratively. What's he saying? Simply put, he's saying, you're not going to heaven if I'm not in you. Remember, being of Christ isn't enough. It's being in Christ and Christ being in you. Okay? All right. So, use the figurative sense as the expression if a literal meaning would involve something immoral. Number five. Use the figurative sense if an expression is an obvious figure of speech. An obvious figure of speech. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 and 56. I think you probably have that on yours, don't you? Let me look and see here. Okay. Then you don't have to turn. All right. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Does death literally have a stinger? No, it doesn't. Is death something that you can speak to directly? No. Death is a tool. Death is the mechanism that God uses to bring his saints home prior to the rapture. Death serves God, by the way. For the Christian, death is not to be feared. Grieved? Sure. Feared? No. It's, it's, it's a figure of speech. Where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? So are we to take it literally? No. The point is, death has no victory over us, nor will the grave, ultimately. This is, by the way, is called personification or apostrophe. When you assign a, a personality to something that's not a person. Uh, like, for instance, you know, if you christen a ship, you call, her, you call her a she. Ah, she's a good ship. Well, the ship's not a person, nor does she carry a gender. But people do that. All right. Um, number six. Use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation goes contrary to the context or scope of the passage. What in the world? Go to Revelation 5. Revelation 5. Revelation 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Even the book is not meant to be taken literally because the book is representative of something much bigger. The book is the title deed to earth. And the seals represent the judgments that are about to come on earth. 
Verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? What he's asking is, who has the right to step up and claim earth and all of creation and mete out the judgment upon it? And no man in heaven, nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. No man. So the scope and the context of the passage, who are they looking for? They're looking for a man. They're looking for a man. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. By the way, the seven spirits of God do not mean there are seven holy spirits. It's seven attributes of one spirit. See that in Isaiah, is it 11, I think? Isaiah 11. Now here's my question. Are we talking about a literal lion, a literal root, or a literal lamb? No. These are images that God gave John to represent the one man who could step forward and take the book. When that book was handed, it was not handed to a lion's paw. It was not pushed within a root, nor was it handed to a lamb. It was handed to the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is meant to be taken figuratively to describe what Jesus has accomplished and who he is, you know. All right? Number seven, use the figurative if a literal interpretation goes contrary to the general character or style of the book or passage. Psalm 63, verse 7. In fact, we'll just read Psalm 63. Context is key in all of this. Psalm 63. David's in the wilderness, running from Saul. He says, O God, thou art art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches... What is the general character and style of this psalm? That God is victorious, that God is going to take care of him, that God is in control, that God is sovereign. And so then when we get to verse 7, because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Is David saying, forgive me for how this is going to sound, God knows my heart, I don't mean to be irreverent. Is David saying that God's a chicken? 
because that's what he's picturing. No, he's not. He's using the the style, the character of this passage is God's sovereignty and his protection and all of that. And he's using the illustration of how a hen will gather her chicks underneath her wing to protect them and take care of them and that nothing gets to them except it comes through her first. He is not saying literally God is a bird. God does not have feathers. He does not have a wing. In fact, he's a spirit. It's not meant to be taken literally. It's meant to be taken figuratively. Number eight. Use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation involves a contradiction of other scripture. Let's go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I've heard this explained this way, that in city gates of that time that there was a small door that uh, was in a gate, and when they would shut the gates at night, um, they would still use the smaller door for latecomers. And that a camel to get through that gate would have to get down on his knees and they'd have to take everything off of it and they'd have to shimmy him through there and all of that. Man, that sounds great, except there's very little evidence that anything like that actually existed. Um, I've not found it. And the Bible doesn't say, well, you know, the eye of the needle was a, a phrase for this door, except... I can't find anything that says it was. I just, I have to believe that Jesus means the eye of a needle. So that much of it is literal. Camel, eye of a needle. But do we take that to mean, literal in its totality, that it's impossible for rich people to be saved? No. Why? Because that's contradiction of other scripture. Why would God say there's some people just can't be saved? If elsewhere, 2 Peter 3, 9, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The scriptures indicate that anybody who wishes to be saved can be saved. So it must be that there is a figurative meaning here rather than a literal one. Last one. I have a question. Yes. I've heard this a bunch. The cock crow stuff. Mm-hmm. Is that a literal cock crow or is that a day, a time of day, an hour? No, it was a bird. I believe a bird crowed. The, the the crows would 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 the, okay. Have you ever had a rooster that had no idea what time of day it was? All right, so that's not universally true. My dad had roosters, and those roosters crowed all day long, and all night long. I mean, they they never. So I guess you could really train a rooster, maybe I don't know. But but you know, we hear about roosters crowing at the you know the break of day and all that. The truth is, they crow whenever they want to. Um, 
there would be a representation of, you know, the cock would crow at this time during the day and this time during the day. But I think for, for the purposes of that, that narrative that Jesus is just saying, before this cock crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. I don't know that I assign. It may give us a rough idea of what time of day it was, but the truth is if you follow the, the steps of Jesus on that evening, you can kind of determine that without the rooster. Um, but I, I don't know that there's any real theological significance to when the cock crowed. Um, but, uh, I mean, there may be some correlation there, but I've always taken it that, you know, when the cock crowed the second time, Peter had denied him three times. And sometimes, sometimes there is things to be found. You dig deeper and you learn little things that are really, really neat. And sometimes you can go to seed on that kind of thing. There's another idiom. You can go to seed on that kind of thing and you can try to spiritualize something that's not meant to be spiritualized. You know, you can try to, I've been guilty of that. I've preached entire messages that weren't at all biblically accurate because they sounded cool to this young preacher. You know, um, I, I have found spiritualization where there was none. And if you find something new, watch out. Because if you're the first preacher that's found something, you're wrong. <laughs> there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, People say, well, what about dispensationalism? That didn't come into play until the you know, late 1800s, early 1900s. Oh, no, dispensationalism's been around a long time. They just didn't know what to call it. It's kind of like Baptists. They were Baptists before they were Baptists. They just didn't call themselves Baptists. Some of them were called Donatists. Some of them were called you know, Monetists and Moravians, things like that. But they were all Baptistic. Um, but anyway, that was a long roundabout answer to, that you didn't need. Here's the last one, number nine. Use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation involves a contradiction in doctrine. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. We spent some time on this in our Bible class. I was surprised at how many young people in our school have at least been exposed to this wrong idea. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Focus in on if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. There's an alarming number of people, even Christians, that take that to mean if somebody commits suicide, they go to hell. Let me be just as blunt as a spoon. There is nothing in Scripture to support the idea that suicide is an unforgivable sin. Nothing. If you are saved, the manner of your death, while it may, in, it may involve what blessings and what um, rewards you get in heaven, it has nothing to do with your destination. Nothing. Nothing to do with it. Because the whole of Scripture, the, and I use this term in a certain way, some people use it in different ways, 
This idea would be contradicting to the true doctrines of grace and eternal security and what the Bible teaches about our heavenly destination. We know from the whole of Scripture that the manner of your death has nothing to do with the destination of a Christian. Nothing. Because if it does, where do we draw the line? A soldier in war falls on a grenade to save the rest of his platoon. What's that? By definition, you've taken your own life, have you not? Would God then send that person to hell? Absolutely not. In fact, the Bible speaks again, greater love hath no man than this. Man, give his life for his friends. You can't find any support in Scripture for the idea that somebody who is saved can lose their salvation, and certainly not through the vehicle of suicide. Now remember something we talked about a long time ago. If you've got a bunch of Scripture that seems to say one thing, and one or two verses that seem to say another, you go with the majority and you figure out the little ones. The whole of Scripture teaches that once saved, always saved, no matter what. Now, can somebody who's saved rebel against God to the point that God takes them home prematurely? Absolutely. But they still go to heaven. I am convinced that Ananias and Sapphira are in heaven. I am. Depending on what day you ask me, I think Saul's there. Maybe. I go back and forth on him. What about Samson? If anybody could send away, and by the way, grace is just as prevalent in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. If anybody could send away their grace, it'd be Samson. My goodness. And yet, I got a feeling that people that went to hell don't get included in the hall of faith. Samson did. So did David. See, beloved, once we're saved, salvation is an act of God. None of us can save ourselves. It's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And if we didn't do anything to earn it, we can't do anything to lose it. So this must mean something else. Because if we take it literally as written, or at least as these people interpret it, then we would believe that suicides go to hell. But that's when we start getting into our, deter- our terms again. What does it mean to defile the temple of God? First of all, friend, you're not the temple of God until you're saved. Because until you're saved, the Holy Ghost does not live inside of you. In fact, if you're not saved, you're of your father, the devil. That's, that's an unpopular thing to preach. Because everybody, we're all God's children. No, we're all God's creation, but we're not all God's children. That doesn't happen until you're saved. Okay. I believe what's being said here is God allows the natural consequences of our actions to destroy us. And could God, could God step in and end somebody's life prematurely? Yes, if you defile the temple long enough. Sure. But what is defiling the temple? I mean, if I'm honest with you, I defiled it today. I ate too much. I don't think it's just a matter of how we take care of our body. I think it's a matter of how we approach the spirit that lives within us. Let me give you something real quick. You don't have these. If you have the book, you have these. But uh, 
I want to just give you some things to think about since I am done so early. On, uh, uh, on, on pages 271 and 272 in the book, it has figures of speech, things that you can watch out for when you're reading your Bible. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to put together this list for you if you don't, you don't have to go buy the book, um, but I didn't have time to type it out. I'm not going to photocopy it. There's some ethical issues with that, and I'm not going to do that. But, uh, but I could type these out for you. Like an anthropomorphism is the attribute of human features or actions to God, you know. The Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. God the Father doesn't have a hand. He's a spirit. Um, an apostrophe, addressing a thing as if it were a person. Oh, death, where is your victory? A euphemism is a use of a less offensive expression to indicate a more offensive one. There are things that the Bible says to treat something more delicately than what's actually happening. Okay. Um, an example that comes to mind is when a, when a man knows his wife. That's a euphemism. Okay. Um, hyperbole. <laughs> I'm guilty of this one. Exaggeration to say more than is literally meant. Paul said, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to serve you. Paul didn't, Paul didn't literally rob a church. He didn't go in there, stick them up with his you know, bow and arrow. He, uh, he, he's saying he's using hyperbole. Give me a second to figure out how to say this one. Hypocatastasis. <laughs> a comparison in which likeness is implied rather than stated directly. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. An idiom is an expression peculiar to a particular people, like Appalachian people. Idioms. I'm, I'm still sorting through that. I love being here. I love you all. This is home. But I, have still, I am still in awe at your idioms. And some of the things that you, you say. And, and uh, my favorite one that I heard recently, this isn't as much an idiom, but I heard, heard an old boy say, he said, boy, i hit you on the top of your head and break your ankles. <laughs> I like that. A merism is a substitution of two contrasting or opposite parts for the whole. You know my downsitting and my uprising. Psalm 139. A metaphor, a comparison in which one thing represents the other. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Are we literal lights? No. But are we to shine forth the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes, and we're to reflect him. A paradox is a, say, is a statement that seems absurd, self-contradictory, or contrary to logical thought. You want to save your life, what do you do? You lose it. That's a paradox. A personification, again, is ascribing human characteristics or actions to inanimate objects or animals. Talks about the sun being ashamed. <laughs> the sun's not capable of being ashamed. A rhetorical question, a question that requires no response, yet forces one to answer mentally and consider its ramifications. And thee have I put my trust. What can man do unto me? There's no answer expected. Just think about it. And then a simile is a comparison you can using like or as. Anyway, so this week's was pretty academic, and, and I'm sorry but not because we needed to cover it. But next week, we get into application. We'll touch on a couple of things in the last two lessons, but then we get into application. And 
this is by far the most exciting part of the book. Because now we go from what is God saying to what is God saying to me. Because there's, there's a big difference in what somebody says and what they say to you. Imagine if you're, you know, at some gathering and let's say that you were there when President Kennedy was inaugurated and you heard him say, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That, that would be a pretty big deal to have been there and heard him say that phrase. Regardless of what you think of his politics, that was a great, great phrase in that speech. That's a pretty big, big deal. But what if afterwards, as he's working through the crowd at his inauguration parade, President Kennedy walks to you and speaks to you and says, I want you to think about what I said. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you, Andy, can do for your country. Now let's magnify that infinitely. We have a book that tells us everything God said that he wants us to know. But when you read it, he's not just saying it. He's saying it to you. The God of the universe, through his spirit, is speaking directly to you. Wow. I can't say for sure, but I'm pretty sure the Muslims don't believe that Allah speaks directly to them. Even our Jewish friends, and we love God's chosen people, they don't hold up a lot of testimony that Yahweh speaks to them. But we serve a God who condescends to speak to us directly any time we'll let him. Remember, prayer is not unidirectional. Who's with you when you pray? According to Romans 8, it's the Holy Spirit. And if you'll listen, he'll tell you what to pray. He'll teach you how to pray. Don't ever get over this, that when you open this book, God is speaking to you and to me one-on-one. Won't it be wonderful when we get to heaven and we see him face to face and we hear his voice and we talk to him? Peter had all of that. Peter said, I saw him. I heard him. But we have a more sure word of prophecy. Peter put more stock in the word of God than he did in even what he saw and heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. As crazy as it sounds, 
we will have no more access to God in heaven than we have right now. We just can't see him. But he's there, listening and speaking. And that's what application is all about. It's not about what does the Bible mean to me. It's what is God saying to me. I can't wait to get into it. Because this has by far been my favorite part of this study. And uh, I'm looking forward to it for your sake. I think you're going to enjoy it. I really do. So, Father, thank you for your word. Help us now as we move into this time of application. May we get everything from it that we need. In Jesus' name, amen.